We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today on what is going to be a very special episode of The Scoop. We have Max Boonanen, all the way from London town, foggy London town, the CEO of B2C2. They are a market-making, an electronic market-making and over-the-counter trading firm. I'm also joined for the first time on the show with my dear colleague, Celia Wan. We're excited to dive into all things market structure, trading, Maybe even tell some old war stories from his FX days at Goldman Sachs. We're very excited to have you on, Max. Thank you so much. Very glad to be here, Frank. I think the best place to start, um, especially for folks who might not be familiar with B2C2, uh, would be the origin story, right? You guys launched in 2016. 15. 2015. 40 folks at the firm now, just about. Um there have been some ups and downs along with the cycle of the crypto market. Tell us a little bit about why you started the company back in 2015. What were you looking to achieve and what's it been like? How's that journey looking? Yeah, the way I started is that I, I was very lucky um, when I was 19. I managed to get an internship at Google and I had, n- I had no financial background whatsoever. But inside of Google at the time was an internal prediction market. So they had some sort of platform where you could bet on events within Google, such as, hey, are we going to reach 600 million users for Gmail this quarter? Things like that. And they wanted to harness the power of the, the wisdom of the crowd to really sort of try to be able to predict where they were going. Um, and so I was, I was 19, knew nothing about trading, but I created a bot to arbitrage that platform and I became the, the sort of number one uh, trader on, on, on Google's platform. It was very interesting that they published a paper about it. Uh, but when I left, I thought, hey, maybe I can make like proper money with this, right? So I stumbled upon a platform that I think was very popular in the United States called Intrade.com. That's a platform where you could bet on political elections and other uh, things like Academy Awards in the United States. And they managed to predict every single state where it went to between Obama and John McCain. And they did that two, two elections in a row in the United States. So it was quite a popular platform. And with my experience at, at Google, I actually decided to go and try to make markets on Intrade.com, and, that, and, and I became the, the main market maker there. So I had a very good run, especially considering I was just a student at the time. And in 2000, late 2012, my flatmate, I had moved to the, to the bank by then, told me, you know, you should look into that Bitcoin thing with your algorithms, you know, there might be something to do. Because at, at the end of the day, you know, you're, you're providing liquidity in some sort of political prediction contracts. There's no underlier, no fundamental. You know, Bitcoin is exactly like that. There's no fundamental, no one knows how to value it, so maybe your stuff would work. So I did that in, uh, in late 2012, and I was running that on, on, on the side uh, while, you know, uh, on the side to my day job. And in 2014, I thought, you know, I was a fixed income trader. I traded interest rate swaps and, and FX swaps. Uh, the market was not doing so hot. Many so in for 2014, that. you're trading, you're making markets on these prediction markets while at the same time... And Bitcoin and Bitcoin working as an FX trader. Yes. Okay. 
And but the, the market was not doing great. And I'm talking about conventional markets, you know, the banks were making less and less money. I didn't think I was going to get a very big bonus. Um, and so I, 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 I picked the last bonus and I, and I resigned to start doing what I was doing during the weekends full time. But early on, our company had to be fully electronic because I was working, you know, my day job. So everything had to be automated. And so we've kept that sort of ethos that everything has to be 24-7, fully automated, very little human intervention because, you know, it was a constraint on our side at the mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And when you guys came into the market, there most of the trading that was going on was not electronic. How did you enter a world where most folks were engaging via Skype, via phone, via Telegram to trade, and here you are with your robust infrastructure. You're trying to get people to almost change their behavior in a sense. How did that sort of pan out? Well, there's two things. So on the one hand, yes, we were one of the first you know, firms to professionally make markets electronically in crypto. But you have to realize that one thing that I find extremely interesting about crypto, even though I'm not myself a huge evangelist, is that it's an open playing field. It's open access, right? So back in the day, you had that big exchange, Mongox, People pronounce it different ways. Well, Mongox, they had an API, they had a WebSocket, you could connect to it, and anyone who thought they have some sort of edge, they have some sort of algo, they can go and they can trade and connect themselves. They don't need to pay thousands of dollars in fees to the CME or, or whatever big platform that you're you use in conventional markets. And so I really like that. I think that's great. That's also why I think you know places like BitMEX have been so successful, is because of that level playing field. Everyone gets the same data, everyone can run their algos, and the, the bar to entry is quite low. Um, now, at the same time, you're also, I think, referring to the, the OTC market. Mm -hmm. But the OTC market, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. Back in the day, people, when they said OTC, they really meant local Bitcoins. And that never made sense to me. Because, you know, local Bitcoins is obviously over the counter because it's not on an exchange. But when you ask most traders what they understand by OTC, it means large institutions trading with one another without going to a venue trading bilaterally, right? And also clearing oftentimes bilaterally. Um, so the OTC market started out as local Bitcoin, complete misnomer. Then it became, and that was the big success of, of Cumberland and Circle, you know, they turned it into a proper block trading market. But that was a voice market. Voice um, meaning, you know, that people trade on the phone, people trade on Skype, on Telegram and things like that. Um, but the thing is, there, there was an important need for uh, for block trades when, for instance, uh, Bitstamp was hacked, I think it was 2014, they were hacked for $5 million worth of Bitcoin. So when you think about it, those were customer Bitcoins, meaning that that replaced them. So that to go out and source those was very difficult at the time to find, you know, uh, $5 million of Bitcoin on exchanges. And Bitstamp was at the end of the day one of the main exchanges itself. So they went to an OTC uh, market participant. Uh, to source that, to so source the 5 million. So that's how the market started out. But the way, uh, the direction of travel is that everything is going electronic. And that's something that we, s we thought was going to happen early on at B2C2. And that's why in 2016, we, we rolled out the first, as we say, single dealer platform in the crypto space, which was basically, there's a website, there's two buttons, you can put in your size, click buy or sell, and you get a price back. Uh, but, you know, that was that was you know, innovative at the time, uh, although now it's basically stable stakes. If you don't have an electronic platform today, if people can't just trade electronically without talking to you, then you're not even a player in the market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of folks would look at Circle as being an example of what can happen if you don't act quickly enough in, in, in this market. Um, but I'm sure we've seen it in others where people who are you know, late to the party miss out on the punch, right? Talk to me a little bit about what it was like in 2017. You guys were one of the, when I first started reporting on this space, one of the first firms that opened their arms up to me to bring me into this this world of OTC and market makings. I'm thinking of Kevin Beardsley in particular, who uh, is now at Kraken, actually. Mm -hmm. He's jumped around a bit. You guys were doing... Massive trades at the time, $50 million trades, $100 million trades. How, when you look back, how did you guys manage with such a lean team to, uh, you know, get through all that flow and um, keep your systems robust and going at all cylinders? Well, first of all, I, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I want to make it clear that you know we I don't want to make it seem like we were bigger than we were at the time. Mm -hmm. right? I, I think yeah we were running a, a big operation, but it's not like people were coding every day to do fifty million dollar trades. Um, and and in fact, one thing that I think served us is that when people wanted to do very large trades with us, we were very wary of those because um, I spent some time on on a CVA desk, which means uh, the desk that looks at the interaction between credit risk and market risk. Um, so when someone comes in with a $50 million trade in a market that can easily move 10% in a day, you know, by the time the trade and, you know, before you get to settlement, the market moves 10%, they might be looking at a $5 million loss. And I think one reason we're still around, um, in spite of having, of all the big OTC liquidity providers, historically we, were, we had the smallest balance sheet. Smallest balance sheet because it's mostly a self-funded firm. Uh, you know, we didn't raise that much money. And you know, whereas others raised like hundreds of millions of dollars from, from large institutions. So we, historically we were smaller in terms of balance sheet. Now, the problem when you do large trades is that if people don't pay, you can really blow up. And I think that some of our competitors really suffered from that. You know, they gave, you know, big credit lines uh, to some of their clients who ended up walking away. And, and that happened specifically in 2018, which was a difficult year for, for everyone that, you know, People that you that used to be you know really crypto rich and you know had a, were making a lot of money and were you know stable and reliable credits, their business model started to turn sour and they couldn't pay. They couldn't. They ended up you know some of them defaulting on trades. Um, so when you know you say we're doing very big trades, I, I prefer to say that we're doing very large volumes uh, because the big trades themselves, it's not something that we're actively pursuing. And in fact, that's I think you know you mentioned some people have found it difficult to adjust. That's actually that makes perfect sense to me because we are focused on getting the flow from you know zero Bitcoin to you know yes hundreds of Bitcoin clips, but really there's so much volume in in the small trades because it's a retail market, a retail driven market. That that's what we're you know specifically focusing on, right? You know we where some competitors might be today doing like 10, 15 trades a day. We're doing on, a, on an average day probably like 10,000, 20,000 OTC trades, all of them electronic, and maybe there's like a handful of voice trades every day. Um, so that's something that we actually have to actually went after, you know, the smaller trades, uh, because, you know, the pie is actually bigger on that side. Mm -hmm. In August, or rather the summer of 2018, you guys were looking to sell, sell the shop. You guys were having a rough time. Um... I remember when I called you, I, I was working on the story and I, it probably wasn't a standout phone call for you, but for me, it was a hallmark, I think, of my journalism career because I never had a startup CEO respond to something so negative with such uh, frankness and uh, sincerity. You said to me, you know, yeah. Uh, I think I reached out. The story went out in November. But when I reached out to you, you said, we're not looking to sell anymore. But it was tough. And it was really tough on me. Talk to us a little bit about that bounce back. And mm -hmm. how are you feeling about the business today? Perhaps you can put yourself in my shoes. Um, so I said earlier, I'm not a big Bitcoin evangelist. I think it's a very interesting market. Um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting day to day to be in this market. But at the end of the day, it's a founder led startup where most of the money is actually ours. You know, we're not spending other people's money. And so one thing that's extremely important to B2C2 is we have to be profitable, right? And we have been extremely profitable. But in 2018, there was a possibility that, you know, yeah, we could be spending a little bit to, to have to invest in the future, but not to be profitable on a, say, on a month by month basis. And that's something that I, I, I'm, it's not my style. That's not something I can live with. And I think that we're seeing a little bit of a backlash uh, against businesses that just spend, spend, spend and don't seem to have a profitable business model. You know, obviously, I'm talking about the likes of WeWork. At B2C2, we were always profitable. And so the, the possibility in 2018 not to be profitable anymore was not something that I could accept. And because I'm not a huge crypto evangelist, I can do this or I can do something else. And in fact, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I have other interests outside of crypto, as you do. I know you're a big fan of, of whiskey. Uh, and, and, so, and so that's where I was coming Take from. Take my mind. Yes. But I think that we, were, we, were, we did a very good job of um, our distribution effort in Japan. We managed to hire 
uh, a very senior trader mm -hmm. uh, from Goldman Sachs, uh, BSB, yeah. um, and and then in, in the United States, that's a market that we only entered this year because it's a you know the United States is a, I don't want to say a dangerous market, but you need to approach it with a cool head, right? You don't want to you don't want to send a 25 year old to run your U.S. operations because they're going to end up in front of the regulator. It's going to be it's not going to be good, and we managed to find uh, an absolute you know a monster. Uh, of the FX market, Rob Catalanello, who had been on the Federal Reserve FX Committee for 10 years, someone really senior in foreign exchange, to run our operations here, and it's been an incredible success. You know, we've we've had an incredible quarter, we've had an extremely good year in 2019, and so now, you know, someone like me, who's really a trader, who's, uh, who, you know, who's thinking of, uh, of what the business model is, where the profit's going to come from, you know, the revenue, um, that, I mean, that's music to my ears. Do you have so, any sense of what the volumes are? I know we don't really have a, a precise um, picture or a full picture of what OTC volumes are. Um, but do you have any sense of what your market share might be globally and then here in the United States? So we have some hints, right? Because actual numbers, people like to keep them close to their chest. Yeah. But I know that one of our, um, I, I don't want to say competitors now because they're, they're, they're focused on an exchange. You know, Alameda Trading was that very successful exchange, now F FTX. They revealed a couple weeks ago that they were doing around $20, $30 million a day in, in OTC volume, which obviously is dwarfed by the, the volumes on FTX, right? I think they're doing like hundreds of millions a, a day on, on their exchange. So you've got one data point, you know, 20 to $30 million a, a day. Um, B2C2 is doing an order of magnitude more than that. Um, in the heyday, Circle had, you know, $200 million days. So when you start thinking of, okay, well, you know, could be low hundreds of millions of dollars a day for like a very big name on you know in a good month not not on a slow day right um, and you think that there's a handful of those then yeah maybe you can start sizing up the market and thinking well maybe a billion dollar a day OTC is a lot you know that would surprise me uh, but definitely more than 100 million so it's got to be maybe I don't know, $600 million a day something like that possibly. sure and let, let's say it's 600 million a day what, what would your well, I don't know if you want to share your market share, but what, what do you think it might be? I think we would be number one. Number one. Before we turned the mics on, we were talking about market share and who, I use the word big dog, uh, might be in the space. 2016, you mentioned it was definitely Cumberland, early entrant, entrant into the market, 2014. And then 2017, or excuse me, 2018 was probably Circle. Yes. And they put out their numbers. I don't know them off the top of my head, but 2018 was a monster year for them. And now here we are in 20, 2019, about to go into 2020. And you don't think there's a clear top dog anymore. And you think it's a good thing. I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's it's more natural, I think. When you look at conventional market, there isn't a single, let's say, investment bank that's by, you know, my the, the number one investment bank. You know, they all have strengths in different um, in different segments, right? Uh, and I think that's where we're also going to end up in crypto. I, in fact, I would think that if B2C2, you know, is by a big distance, the number one OTC liquidity provider, that would actually scare me because, you know, with, with the large footprint also comes specific risk you know i don't want to say too big to fail but i think you you see what i'm i'm hinting at if if really you're the center of price formation in a market then that starts to be a little bit unhealthy uh, and in fact when you know when i traded uh, interest rate swaps it was very important that you know there were other banks in the market where we could hedge with uh, there was a, a deep uh, inter-dealer broker um, inter-dealer market where we could exchange risk with one another so i would think in in fact that for a healthy market to exist we should have, I think OTC is too small compared to exchanges uh, at the time being, so that I think that's going to change. But it's important that there's different dealers that trade with one another and move risk around and, and recycle it rather than one top dog. I don't think that would be the best outcome. If you think about what, no one shop is going to be strong at everything, or naturally, that's the natural state of things. Where is B2C2 strong and where are they weak? Um, I start with the um, the weaknesses, yeah. I think where we're weak. It's like a job interview. What is yes. your, Tell me what your weakness is. I work too hard. I work too damn hard. 
Well, I, I do hope I get the job. Um, <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of weaknesses, uh, what we have is, you know, historically we've had a, a smaller balance sheet than others. That's something that I think we've mended over time. Um, but the balance sheet, okay. so we, there's some trades that we couldn't do because, you know, it was going to be too much pressure on our operations. Um, also, because we were historically smaller, I mean, now we're 40 people, but, you know, it wasn't always like that. You know, things like 24-hour settlements was not something that we could easily support. And for some of the players in the space, it's important that, you know, you're able to settle anytime, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that was also, that was also a weakness. Um, and, um, and, and, but when you start looking at the strength, I think that our core strength is that our background in OTC market making in foreign exchange, specifically EFX and in, and in, and in interest rates, um, I started a lot, of, a lot of things and gives us good color in terms of what the market's going to look like. That's why we had the first single dealer platform in 2016. That's why in 2017 we went to Japan and actually in terms of our, um, the things that we were good at, we're the number one player in Japan by a huge, huge distance. There's no one else who has managed to crack Japan uh, in the way that we have. Um, and the reason that we have achieved that is that we understand the dynamics of OTC markets versus exchange markets. The reason that anyone what trades do you mean by that? What yes. do you mean by that? The what do you mean when you say you understand the dynamics between yeah. exchange markets and OTC? Let, let me expand on that. So if you trade on an exchange in conventional asset classes, the only reason you do that is because no one wants to trade with you OTC. Let's say you're a hedge fund. You want to trade for an exchange. You first, you go to JP Morgan and you say, show me some prices, I want to trade dollar yen. So you trade some dollar yen against JP Morgan. They're a principal market maker, meaning that if you win, they lose, right? If you're too smart and they're not able to hedge their risk on time and they're not making money off you, first they're gonna widen the prices that they show to you. So it's gonna become less, less attractive for you. If you keep trading and they keep making money, uh, losing money, they're just going to kick you out. And when they kick you out, what do you do? Well, you go to the exchange. You go and you trade CMEFX futures. So the exchange is where the people who are too smart to trade against uh, the natural OTC liquidity providers because their algos are too sharp, too fast, too whatever, they go to the exchange. Mm -hmm. So it means that if you have a user base which is more naturally, let's say, like long-term investors, or retail traders in crypto just want to buy some crypto, they don't know that the market's going to go up or down in the next, you know, 50 milliseconds or five seconds, right? So it makes a lot of sense for them. It's a lot more economical for them to go to a new TC liquidity provider because they're going to get much better prices. So that's what you find in all conventional markets. If you trade OTC, and you have a flow that is manageable because it's not too aggressive, you're not like looking at, you know, making money on the next 50 microseconds or something like that, then you get much better prices than on the exchanges. So that's a dynamic that we really understand at B2C2. And so we're really good at understanding the business model of our clients so that we can show them the tightest pricing possible in respect to their business model. And I'll give you a simple example. That's something that our competitors are re really struggle with. Um, so you mentioned the, you know, the, the top dogs in the two previous years. They really struggle with people like uh, quant funds that have, you know, alpha models that are going to tell them that the market's going to go up or down in the next five or, or something, five minutes, right? So those guys struggle with that because if they get the risk of those guys who may, maybe are predicting that the market's going to go up because Twitter tweets are, you know, all bullish, they're not, they don't manage to hedge fast enough to be able for, at the same time, the client to make money because at the end, at the end of the day, the client's right on an horizon of five minutes. But the market maker, if you're hedged within the first five seconds, you also make money, mm -hmm. right? And so trading with smart clients who have an horizon that doesn't overlap with yours as a market maker is really something that we've nailed at B2C2. And that means we can trade with people that our competitors don't dare trade with, right? And when you start aggregating so much of that flow, so from quant funds, from retail aggregators, uh, you know, from simple, you know, family office punters, when you start having, you know, thousands and thousands of trades a day, then you don't even need to ever hedge on an exchange anymore. So you internalize all the flow. When you have a buyer on the one hand, you have a seller coming to you in the next few seconds. You can even skew your prices to select clients to be able to show them access that so, so that they're going to be able to take you out of your risk. And when you're able to really have a lot of OTC flow two-way from a, a diverse uh, client base, 
then you really start to have a pricing advantage because you don't need to ever go to the exchange to edge anymore. So that's something that is really a core strength of B2C2. And that's why we can, I think, show the tightest pricing in the industry. But there's something that's important to note. The fact that we can show the tightest pricing in the industry doesn't mean that we show those prices to everybody. Because obviously, one thing that's really important, and that's how you know, the big banks make money also in, in foreign exchange and other asset classes, is that they're able to, to show specific pricing to specific clients. You know, your client who's not price sensitive, you need to charge a bit more. Because that also allows you, you know, to pay for your fixed costs and show much better pricing to people who are price sensitive. So doing that you know, sort of uh, tiering in pricing is also very important. So are you guys going to the exchange at all on that side of the business? Well, well we're... We're, we have a very big footprint on exchanges. Um, we're, I think any exchange that we trade with, normally we're you know, in the top five um, in terms of, of market share. Um, but what's important is that you know, those businesses are in synergy. The fact that we see very, a very low overall cost of trading on exchange helps us show the best pricing OTC, which then in turn, because we see flow that others don't, gives us a bit of an edge on the exchanges. So we have we have those two businesses where you know we where we have quite a big footprint. Yeah, sure. Um, so you mentioned that Japan is a hard market to crack, and then do you think those advantages that you just mentioned that B two C two has um, is what help you, but not other market makers, to be successful in Japan? Uh, I think Japan is you know has very specific you know there's the culture over there is quite specific, right? Um, and you find that it actually cuts both ways. Japanese companies that want to go international often struggle to do so because, because of cultural reasons. You know, the way business is done in Japan is a little bit different. And, and when, you know, if you come in quite aggressively um, and you think that you have the best product and they ought to trade with you because obviously you're the best and you're from the US and yada yada, that doesn't usually, you know, go down well in, in Japan. Uh, and so you have to be, you have to be attuned to those sensitivities. And that's also why, I mean, if you just send someone who's, even if they've been, you know, 10 years in, in Japan, but they're from the US, if they're not actually Japanese, there's always going to be perhaps a little bit that, that's missing, right? So you need to attune yourself to the local sensitivities. Um, and as I said, it, it cuts both ways, right? Um, you know, we, we know there's obviously a lot of famous Japanese companies that have cracked the, the U.S. market, uh, but it, a lot of them have also struggled to do so, right? And, and I think of, you know, on the... Um, in terms of uh, NTT Docomo and places like that, you know, have, are absolutely massive in Japan, but you've never heard of them outside of Japan. Or you look at the big FX brokers, you know, the G GMO. GMO is a good example. Mm -hmm. In Japan, you have to publish your FX volumes as a broker. So it's all public. GMO does, in, on any given day, in foreign exchange, more than $100 billion in volumes on a daily basis. When you look at the bank like a, you know, a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, in foreign exchange, maybe they do 40 billion. So a fraction of that, right? So GMO is an absolute monster when it comes to trading volumes, yet no one here on the table I would expect has really heard of them. I think it's, it, I think it's a point that can be also be made in the crypto market in terms of the number of institutional and enterprise companies that are in cryptocurrency here in the States we haven't heard of, but I know you guys are working with a number of these players. Um, I'm thinking of Line, uh, which mm -hmm. recently launched an exchange, uh, Rakuten. I yes. hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. No, how do I, how do you say it? Rakuten? Rakuten? <laughs> what did I say? Rakuten? Rakuten? I apologize to our Japanese listeners. The H is silent. The H is <laughs> uh, You're working with a number of these different enterprises on, on, on their cryptocurrency endeavors. How, how, much of a, how much is that part of the business, working with these large firms that are kind of trying to crack in, maybe trying to source some Bitcoin liquidity? Yeah. So one thing I can say is that three quarters of, of our volume is coming from regulated institutions. Uh, so a lot of those would be perhaps not line because they're a little bit new to the scene, um, you know, but, but the likes of, of GMO. Um, so when I think of the large players that are getting into the space and have an established business model outside of it, what I think is a common theme is that they all have a strong retail user base. Mm -hmm. So Rakuten is like the Amazon of, of, of Japan. So, you know, they have millions and millions of clients. Um, line is the WhatsApp 
of, of Asia. So they've got millions of users through that. And so for them, it's easy to, to make a success out of it because it's like a Robin Hood. You know, if you turn on crypto, people are just going to trade because they trade stocks with you. Um, so, that's, uh, so that's why I think those guys have, a, have an easier way in compared to a lot of institutions that are more traditional and, and, and like an asset manager. A BlackRock. You know, people for a long time in crypto have been saying, oh, there's a wall of institutional money that's just about to get in the market, just about to get in the market. They've been saying that for two, three years, right? I think that that's misunderstanding what an institution is. When you think of institutions, you have to realize one thing. There isn't such a thing as a, a sort of universe that is outside of our reality where institutions live. All institutions they and they, their purpose is to serve you know the general population at the end of the day if you look at insurance companies massive asset managers but what do they do i mean you just buy you know fire insurance for your house when you look at pensions funds absolutely you know massive like Cal calpers in 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 california but who do they serve they serve you know mom, you know the, the general population who are investing their their savings right and so when you think of it it would be very strange if an institution that serves the general population were to decide of its own volition to go and start investing in crypto when really their mandate is not that at all. An insurance company, their mandate is that they're getting the premiums the premia every month in, but they don't need to pay out on the policies immediately because obviously, thankfully, your house doesn't burn down every month. And so they have that you know, pot of money that they need to invest, but it needs to be super safe because when the house does burn down, they need to make sure that the money's there to pay out, to pay the claims. And so it would be very surprising that you know, conservative institutions um, you know, get into the crypto space without having a strong mandate. And today, if you're a retail investor, you can buy crypto. It's not so difficult. You can go to Coinbase, you can go to a lot, Kraken, to a lot of places. And so you don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily need a BlackRock to put together a mutual fund for you to invest in. And so I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, the institution money, quote unquote, if there's such a thing, you know, is slow to come in. In my opinion, the institutions that need to be in crypto, they're already in crypto. So Robinhood, they're in crypto because obviously that that completes their offering. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But what what do you think is keeping? I, it was funny. I was just up in Greenwich, Connecticut for a hedge fund private equity conference. And I asked the audience before the panel started, how many of you think crypto is a cesspool? And 60% of the hands in the room shot up. Mm -hmm. And then I asked how many people were invested and only, you know, 20% maybe raised their hand. That area of the market, I do think when I think of like asset managers to, to your point, you know, like the black rocks of the world and um, the larger funds are really walled off in a way that trading firms aren't the retail brokers aren't the exchanges aren't. Why do you think that is? Is it just a risk thing? Is it they don't see the thesis for investing in Bitcoin right now in this market? There's talk of, it being a safe haven when it probably isn't at all. There's talk of it being a, a hedge against runaway inflation and a hedge against um, political uncertainty. Maybe they're not buying that argument or maybe it's the reputational risk. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think it is? There's a, there's a few types of, of institutions you mentioned. Um, when it comes to asset managers, like, like a BlackRock, the first question I think is one of suitability. They have to think that, well, it is suitable for the portfolio. And that's going to be a question of the mandate. So do they have an actual mandate? Because they're investing on behalf of people. They're just not investing in stuff that they think is going to go up. So they need to have a mandate. In order for them to have a mandate, they need to think that there's enough demand out there for there to be a mandate uh, You know, they can, if they create a fund that people are actually going to invest in. And I think that they, don't, they just don't think that's the case. Um, when you look at hedge funds, I think hedge funds are actually an interesting uh, segment because those guys could potentially you know, drive a lot of volume to the crypto market. Um, there's two types of hedge funds. Hedge funds that are a little bit more aggressive and are happy to set up things like, you know, offshore entities to start trading on BitMEX and things like that. Um, because, you know, otherwise you can't if you're based in the US. And you have other types of hedge funds who have to just abide by the local regulations, which would be, well, okay, you need first 
well, you need to have an official fund that's regulated, let's say in Europe as IFMD, then you need to have a third party auditor, then you need to have a third party custodian. And when you string all of that together, that stuff does, doesn't exist in crypto. So that's obviously one thing that makes the market inaccessible to a lot of funds. But if you're a fund that does want to trade crypto, but if you me, you can, right? Actually, first part of call would probably be um, depending on the type of hedge fund. Calling you up. <laughs> <laughs> Calling you up perhaps, but in fact, even before then, you're probably connected to the CME, right? So you can trade the CME futures. B2C2 is one of the official market makers on the CME. So you can just go and trade there and you're going to trade with B2C2 under, and others under a sort of like a regulated wrapper, right? You're trading a regulated product by the CFTC. It happens to, f to track Bitcoin. Um, and on the other side, you know, you have firms competing to show, to show prices there. So if you're a hedge fund that do want to trade crypto, it's not so difficult if, you know, when there's a will, there's a way. Um, but obviously, if you just look at, uh, at everything that they need to put in place to start trading crypto on the physical side, then of course it's, it's a lot more complicated, but it is doable. Um, why, and we've talked about this, we've talked about this with you tons of times, but might, might be worth diving into it for the podcast. From your perspective as a trader, um, you guys trade Tether. Uh, how does it help your operations from a uh, you know, efficiency standpoint, and why do you think their market share is so unbreakable? Yes. What is USDC, Paxos doing that? It's just most traders look at it and say, I don't care. Yeah. And of course, Gemini Dollar, which is best, basically dead. So uh, there's a few reasons, in my opinion. So, yes, we, we trade. We trade Tether. The reason we do that is not because we, we gain some efficiency in doing so, but it's because our clients want it. We have a, a lot of clients that want to trade against Tether, so we have to offer that. I think that Tether is mostly, um, you have to look to, to Asia to understand why it's so popular. I think there's a, a big first mover advantage. It's extremely popular in Asia. And in fact, in a lot of ways, it has replaced Bitcoin in a lot of the, the flows in Asia, because as you understand, there's a lot of, pe of countries where it's not so easy to invest your own money and to, and to safeguard it. You know, people are worried about authoritarian gov governments and, and things like that. And so the idea to, that you can have um, a stable asset that you can buy into and you can move it around easily and you can just, you know that it's probably gonna be there you know, in a year's time, that is extremely valuable to a lot of, of, of wealthy individuals in, in Asia. And so to a great extent, people who used to be buying Bitcoin in Asia are now buying Tether directly, which I find fascinating, right? And at the same time, perhaps a little bit concerning when it comes to the viability of the Bitcoin market itself, right? Because we know that you know, a lot of the 2017 bubble and everything you know, originated uh, to some extent in, in Asia. Now, why haven't others um, took over? Well, I think that there's that first mover, uh, mover advantage, but also when it comes to issuing a stable coin, what, what you have to realize is that for people to trade it, they need to be able to have access to it, right? And if you're gonna trade with Gemini dollar or something like that, first you need to get a hold of it. In order to get a hold of it, you need to send a wire to, uh, to, uh, to, to some bank and then they issue you some Gemini dollars. But then what can you do with it? Not so much because it's not as liquid as Tether. So liquidity begets liquidity. And so it's just difficult to, to displace the incumbent. But on top of that, there also is a little bit of a, of a lending market against Tether. So that also makes it much easier, right? So that means that you can actually go and borrow some tether and start trading with it, which I think is much more difficult to do with a USDC or a GUSD because they're naturally averse to just you know lending out the their the float that that they have, and also there's just fewer people that are naturally long um, USDC and GUSD that want to lend it out. Whereas when you think of it, if people are using tether to park money outside of jurisdiction that they don't feel comfortable with, I mean, their home jurisdiction, then those guys would be potentially inclined to lend it out to get some yield on it, right? And I think one thing that's interesting with the, the stablecoin markets at the moment is that you don't get the interest that comes with having large bank deposits. Because when you think of it, if there's $100 million of USDC or whatever it is out there, they're earning 2% a year. 
on where, wherever they part the cash, be it at commercial banks or in the repo market, they're getting 2% and they're keeping that for themselves, which means that it's, it's $2 million in revenue annually, right? Uh, so I think there, one thing that would be actually innovative in stable coins would be if somehow they managed to pass on part of the interest they have, margin. They have, they have done that. Um, Coinbase is doing that with USDC. Oh, that's right, actually. That's right. Yeah. They announced that maybe like two, three weeks yeah, ago, yeah, something yeah. like that, which I think is really interesting. And that, How that, many do you think they're getting 2%? So if Tether's getting 2% yeah. on their reserves, I mean, that's... It's serious money. We're talking about $5 money. billion dollars now? Yeah. They probably have a deal with, with the bank where they don't make exactly 2% because the bank, in return for taking, you know, I mean, <laughs> taking them on as a client, would need, there would need to be something in it for them. But even if Tether, you know, keeps 1% of the interest that you can earn on Federal Reserve deposits, I mean, that's, that's $50 million a year. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you don't need to do much. I mean, operationally speaking, I don't think, I mean, it's not like there's a lot of tech or something like that behind stable coins, right? So it's a really interesting business to be in. From the regulatory perspective, just because, you know, whether it's servicing U.S. clients or service or offering services that are not uh, regulated in the proper way, um, how big of a regulatory risk is out there for the exchange market? I think I know who you're talking about because I saw their name on, their, their name on the sign-up sheet when I got into your building. <laughs> so think about that actually from a, a privacy perspective, sign-up sign up sheets, they're a little bit strange, right? I, I, I'll <laughs> tell you, I went to... Uh, it was on the 30th of October. <laughs> I, I've, I've uh, went to a... Well, it's not a relevant story, but I remember... I'll tell you anyway because it's funny, but we'll cut it out. My old boss when I was at NASDAQ, I went to the NYSE for a press event and I saw he had signed in which gave away that he was fucking interviewing for a job wow. there, which wow. I was like, Joe, what are you doing at New York Stock Exchange? Oh, so wow. you're right. Like the sign-in sheets, always yeah. look at them. They might have some yeah. interesting information. Yeah. But I won't tell anyone. Thanks. So regulatory risk. At the same time, you know, at, at B2C2, we've played a very long game. You know, we got the first regulatory license for a crypto uh, market making firm in, in Europe. Um, and, and, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at what, we, what we're going to do in the United States. Um, but at the end of the day, businesses that have decided not to be regulated, to remain offshore, um, to, you know, not do KYC, they've been extremely successful. And in some ways, it's a little bit disheartening, right? Because you, you would think, hey, we, you know, we do th things by the book. It would be nice if there were, you know, some sort of, of, of payout to that. Um, but it hasn't been the case for a, a long, long time. You know, the fines that we've seen, even, you know, EOS and, uh, and, and the small Bitfinex fine that, that they got uh, some years back, it was nothing. It ends up being a cost of doing business, which is a problem that people also bring up when it comes to banks. You know, if the fines just become a way of doing business, uh, sorry, a cost of doing business, they just get priced in and, and it doesn't work as an incentive anymore. Um, so I would think that based on, on history, the regulatory risk is not that high because at the end of the day, if you don't touch the, the mighty US dollar at any point, you know, what can they do to you? And in fact, the emergence of Tether and other stable coins, there's talk of having even like, a, I mean, a Tether might do a, like Tether Gold, right? Um, you know, puts it a little bit outside of the reach of, of US authorities. Mm -hmm. So my, my, I think what's the most likely is that businesses that have avoided regulation will keep doing well, that it will be a, uh, a long fight for the likes of Coinbase and others who have decided to be, you know, to be heavily regulated. Um, over, I think they will, they will then make a lot of money because obviously if you're the only game in town, you make money. And that, I mean, that's why Coinbase made a billion dollar in revenue in 2017. Apparently, that's because they had everyone. They were the only game in town, more or less. So I think that uh, you know the few that managed to do it will be profitable. But if you tell me, hey, I want to start a crypto business today, should that go down? Should I go down the, the regulated route or should I not? Then it's difficult to say, yeah, do things by the book because look at all those other companies they have been extremely successful. Um, so I would think that the regulatory risk is low, but there's an interesting element here. Mm -hmm. What about the 2020 election? Mm -hmm. What about the 2020 election? One thing that, that someone told me, which I thought was quite insightful is, well, you know, look at the current US administration. There's that new... Um, new industry that's creating a lot of jobs in the U.S. Sure. 
and you know we're in the we're in the era of America first. Do they really want to drive out that new industry and send it to you know places like China and, and Singapore China. and others, right? So that's not. I I didn't realize that it's possible that there's you know a little bit of perhaps political pressure in the United States, or maybe not pressure because that that sounds improper, but you know um, directions or you know or a, a philosophy that they want to they want to abide by that we should maybe not come down too hard on crypto but what's going to happen in 2020 then might might actually you know change things around because you, we, you know we know one of the main contenders in on the democratic side is um, is very pro regulation you know i'm sure for for good reasons i'm sure there's you know there's there's you know it's it's a i'm not saying it's a bad platform uh, but that might actually have have consequences in terms of our industry right so that's something that i think we need to watch even though elizabeth you know, warren She's Bernie one Sanders. of them. She's one of them. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, and po but possibly Warren is, is uh, you know, she's she's been thinking of that stuff for a long time. So it's possible she has a plan, sure. whereas others would be, you know, oh, we need to regulate more, but they don't necessarily yeah, have a plan. Yeah, we got Yang Gang in there. Yes. We'll be in good shape. Um, thinking about exchanges, I'm curious to know. I mean, the fragmentation is insane compared to, to U.S. equity markets where you have 12 exchanges, 40-some-odd dark pools. I think today another crypto exchange launched. I think I saw a headline that, that said there was another one licensing the technology of London Stock Exchange. When is it enough enough? Clearly, it's one of the only business models in the space that works. But at a certain point, I don't care. I, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a trader. At a certain point... I would be looking at this market from your scene and say, all right, I'm done. I'm done considering new exchanges. I've got who I'm linked up to. I don't care if you're licensing this technology. It's like there's hundreds of exchanges. It's it's maddening to me. Maybe yes. I'm just annoyed because I, I, I hate writing up all these press releases about the every single Tom, Dick, and Harry who decides to launch an exchange. But the traders I talk to uh, voice real frustration with the fragmentation. I'll tell you what it is. Um, in the United States, the fragmentation of exchanges is coming down in, in, in good part to Reg NMS. I don't know if you've heard of Regulation NMS, but that's that uh, regulation that says that you can only trade at the national best bid offer on any platform. And so that's why if you're starting a new exchange, you're you can possibly attract a lot of liquidity even if you're uh, a new uh, an upstart because if your prices are better then people, people have, have to, to trade, with, trade you. with you and so even as a new exchange if you set up your incentives you know market making rebates and things like that in the right way you can get people to trade with you well, what does that have to do with crypto well what that what that has got to do with crypto is this without Reagan MS in the United States there would be I think way fewer exchanges mm -hmm. right and so you would think I that in, in large markets the natural state of play is to have fewer exchanges like one primary venue and a few secondary venues yeah that's what you see in foreign exchange for instance where you have EBS which is the main market and there's there's other secondary venues um, but when you look at crypto it's completely the other way around people are mostly trading on exchange and they're re it's retail traders trading on exchange. Mm -hmm. So what that tells you is two things. One, for uh, um, you know, sophisticated trading firms, that's fantastic because it gives you more opportunities totally. to actually trade um, against you know, some of those traders uh, who don't necessarily have a ton of edge and you, know, you can be profitable by being you know, like what, what I mentioned in, in a piece I wrote on, on a, for a competing newspaper um, on latency arbitrage. That's right. right. So, you know, when, when you see the price move on BitMEX, then you can rush to Coinbase and you can be the first to trade on Coinbase before retail traders have managed to take their orders out. So it's quite interesting. On the one hand, you know, it's actually a fertile playing field for electronic trading firms. And on the, um, on the other side, so that, that fragmentation is due to the fact that today, because um, retail traders are not necessarily very price sensitive, it's mostly a question of marketing and distribution. So you don't necessarily need to have better prices or better technology or anything like that. If you can convince, if you can provide a good user experience to your traders, then you can potentially have a successful exchange. So that's why I think that the, the field is, is more open than what you would normally anticipate. And you see that with a lot of the newcomers, right? Binance, incredible success story. How long did it take for Binance to really take off? Less than six months.
right? Mm -hmm. You're looking at there, there's a, a few new exchanges now, Coinflex, FTX, those guys in, in a few months, I've really taken market share and I've, I've reached sure, really sure. high volume. But it's, a, you know, derivatives versus spot. So maybe not necessarily apples and apples, but certainly all fruit. What will the exchange landscape you think look like in the next two, three years? Will, when will, or rather to put the question differently, when will exchanges start consolidating or start shutting down? I used to think they would consolidate, but no, I don't think so anymore. Interesting. Two reasons That's, for that. Well, because they're still being able to raise prices. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But so why? one reason for that is they made so much money in 2017. They have a big war chest, sure. and their user bases are some of them managed to you know have a, a somewhat captive user base, and so they're still making money, right? I mean, you know, Kraken, Coinbase, all those guys, they're doing healthy volumes, and they don't users don't seem to switch so much. And, and I think that when you look at, uh, especially the retail FX market, I think it's possible that in the long run, we're just gonna have a lot of, a lot of distributors, a lot of brokers, and that's what you see in foreign exchange. You know, you have dozens of FX brokers that you can pick from. Obviously you have some bigger than others, but it's possible that we're just never gonna have some consolidations or, or it's gonna be at the margin. It's not necessarily gonna be, you know, exchanges are dying left and right because they're sure. being outcompeted by, by better ones. That's too bad. I'm it is a kidding. little bit too bad in a way because <laughs> it, so one thing that's important with that is I, I talk about you know sophisticated traders but it imposes a very high cost even on sure. sophisticated traders because if you are price sensitive if you're not a retail investors and you're you know buying for the long run if you if the you know the basis points matter to you then if you want to have good liquidity you need to connect to dozens of venues and I see actually and something you're constantly as, changing your API they're constantly changing their they're, APIs they're changing APIs constantly, yeah, yeah. so one thing that I find and actually you know our exchange is going to consolidate I don't think so not so much but one field I'm a little bit worried about about is um, some funds, some crypto funds, right? They managed to raise a bit of money. Let's say you raise $20 million. Okay, well, it doesn't sound like that much, but when you think about it with the leverage that you can get, you know, at least 10x leverage on any platform worth its salt, that means you can start having like $200 million positions, right? That's plenty. I mean, you don't need more. If, you're if you're, your positions are bigger than that, you're pretty, you know, too big for the market, right? It's <laughs> like the London whale, right? But at the same time, if you look at the fees that at the management fee that they can charge, let's say two percent. I mean, two percent of twenty million dollars is four hundred thousand dollars a year. That doesn't pay for the tech team that you need to connect to all the exchanges that you need to connect to in order to have good liquidity. Which I think is actually one of the big tailwind for OTC trading because there's only a handful of firms. You know, we mentioned a lot of them that have really the wherewithal the resources to connect to all those platforms and basically, you know, recycle as part of that liquidity yeah. into the OTC market. Sort of wrapping this up, I know you have a meeting to get to, even though this is more fun. Let's take a look or examine what the plan is going into 2020. You guys do OTC, you market make, you have a CFD. So what other new products are you guys maybe thinking of rolling out or offering to your clients? Um, should we expect business as usual over the next year or something exciting or crazy? Yes. First of all, we need to focus on what it is that we're best at. And going back to 2018, as you mentioned it, you know, a lot of firms overextended, including B2C2. And, you know, if you go into too many directions, then on the one hand, you know, you're losing focus. And on the second hand, you're, you might be the victim of the next crypto winter. And there's a lot of people saying that we might be going into a new crypto winter. So maintaining laser focus is important to us. That said, um, it's important for us to broaden our geographical footprint. Our entry in the United States, uh, in the US market this year has been an incredible success. So we want to keep you know, grabbing market share from incumbents in, in the US. Uh, there's potentially a handful of jurisdictions that we can also access. I'm thinking places like the Middle East. Um, and But in terms of products, I don't think that we want to change the recipe too much. There's one thing that um, I'm considering because I was, you know, because my background, you know, I traded repo, I traded FX swaps. Um, we end up B2C2 being a large, uh, a large lender, 
actually. So I don't want to go into the lending business proper, but it's something that we naturally do because when our institutional clients come and they want to buy $20 million of Bitcoin, well, guess what? I mean, I don't necessarily want to use $20 million of actual dollars to go and buy Bitcoins when really my client is actually long synthetically. You know, they're, they're buying derivatives from us. Um, so naturally, I end up doing well, extending credit to a lot of our clients. And I think that's something that we could, we could improve on. I think that we could have a slightly better offering than what some others are, are doing in the market. So yeah, that lending market, repo market, borrow market, there, there's different names for it. Um, I prefer to call it the funding market. That might be something we might be making a bit more of a, a public foray into. At the moment, it's really for our clients. You know, we don't do that for outside, you know, people who wouldn't trade with us. Um, so that's something that I'm considering. But first and foremost, we want to maintain a laser focus on what it is that we're good at, which is um, trading on exchange, providing OTC liquidity, and really understanding the business model of our clients so that we can give them the tightest pricing possible. When you think about that, you know, um, we need to remain one step ahead of the game. So showing different prices to different clients, some competitors, they're not even there yet, right? So when you're doing that, what is the next step? The next step is things like selectively skewing specific clients to try to attract the right flow. Um, it's understanding what it means when your trades, when your, your prices are aggregated. So one of the things that people don't really realize is that um, having too many liquidity providers, and that's a crisp insight, I think, having too many liquidity providers can actually be worse for you as a taker. The reason is the following. If you aggregate prices from 10, 10 firms, OTC, or you, you even using an aggregator, there's a few that have come out. Yeah, Tagami. Um, yeah, and, and Tagami is a good firm. I don't want to you know, say that their business model is not good, but it is more subtle than that. If you're aggregating too many liquidity providers, when you trade, the liquidity provider that gets the trade is the one who will have shown the best price out of 10. So it's like a winner's curse. It's like winning, winning an auction, right? You don't want to be the winner out of 10. And I remember my days at Goldman, there was a, there was a, a, a phrase that people used when you have a very large name that wants to do a big trade and you feel they're going to move the market around. What you want to do is you want to be number two you want to have the second best price. You have the second best price so that you don't win the trade, you don't lose money, but then you don't hurt the relationship. And the worst thing that you can do on something that's called a BWIC, that's bids wanted in competition. So let's say they want to sell some bonds, they get bids from a lot of banks. On a BWIC, you don't want to be DFL, dead fucking last. So you know when you aggregate too much, the, people, the, the, the market maker that wins the trade, if they win out of 10, then they're always going to lose money. Mm -hmm. So what people are going to do, they're going to widen their pricing, and you might actually see worse pricing by aggregating 10 rather than aggregating two or three. Two or three. So those dynamics are not intuitive, right? The, you would think, well, the more liquidity I get, the better the pricing I should receive, right? But it's, uh, it's actually more complicated than that. So I think one of our core strengths is to understand those dynamics, those, those dynamics and to be a, you know, a few steps ahead of the rest of the market. It's interesting. IEX has this whole marketing campaign out about resting your order on one exchange as opposed to people again how do we get liquidity trade across multiple venues but if you just let it rest you'll actually get a better price is what their point is it's kind of irrelevant but just makes me think of that um i think that's a great place to close the the conversation um really interesting to have you on um and next time you're in new york stop by again and we'll dive into more topics we could probably keep going for another hour if we wanted to. Yeah, thanks a lot, Frank. Uh, thanks a lot, Frank and, and Celia. And, and I want to say I, I, I appreciate you, you know, um, the effort that your, uh, your company is making in digging into, you know, what it is that, you know, crypto trading is and really trying to go beyond the veneer, beyond the surface, which a lot of people, uh, you know, stop at um, in terms of, you know, hey, here's going to be a nice headline, but actually maybe there's something more interesting if you dig a bit deeper. And there's just so many things to dig into. Keeps me busy, keeps me young, keeps me from hitting the gym, but maybe that's something we'll work on soon. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcast. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer -peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, 
So be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode.